You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And this is Lost and Rewound. I am Alon. And my name is Jimmy. It's time to get embarrassed with us. Thanks so much for coming back and checking us out here on Radio Free Brooklyn. You could hear us every Thursday at 3 p.m. And thanks for making this 3 p.m. Thursday slot your ticket to the world of Lost and Rewound. Yes, we are coming to you here live from the basement of a bike shop. Indeed, in Bushwick. And we have a great show for you. And before we get to our guest of the hour... Uh, allow us to remind you that this is the show where you get to listen and involve yourself into the world of old audio. Tapes, tapes, and more tapes. Tapes. We're obsessed. We're obsessed. If you have them, Mm -hmm. and you do have them. You have them. They're collecting dust, and you're afraid to listen. Don't be afraid. Yes. Go in. Go deep. Go deep. (laughs) (laughs) Find them. And submit what you have. If you have a mixtape or a demo as a present for your 15th birthday, lostandrewound at gmail.com. You know, if you recorded that propaganda speech in the town square that caused a revolution. Hey. We want to hear it. It's it's all broad, baby. Uh, Let's begin. is a Brooklyn-based actor, voiceover guy, and really quite talented singer. He also happens to be a published graphic novelist. You can find Green Point of View currently on sale at the Midtown Comics in Grand Central in New York City. Please welcome to the show our first in-house guest for Radio Free Brooklyn's Lost and Rewound, Tony Wolf. Welcome, welcome, Mr. Wolf. Hey, guys. Great to be here in the basement of the world's most immortal bike shop. Indeed. I became a fan of your show, and uh, I was approached by you guys going, hey, do you have any old tapes, and uh, specifically cassette tapes? 
And I love the idea that your show captures that aesthetic and that you're playing audio that is literally from cassette tapes. You're not you're not playing CDs as far as I understand, right? You you have you ever played CDs on the show? We're open to it, but you know, why not tapes? Right. CDs a lot of people weren't recording with CDs until uh I don't know, when were people recording with CDs? Mid-90s. Like the 90s. Mid 90s, late 90s. Because that's when CDRs started becoming a thing. Oh, right. And I know that CD mixes were th- are a thing, but in terms of like making your own audio projects, I don't really know where that and when that was. Occurred. If there was some way we could get our hands on like homemade records, we would be playing them. Seriously. I mean, it's all about the old audio aesthetic and so much as is that tapes really encompass what everybody was more or less at the most pedestrian level using more than anything because it was so easy to get tapes right my dad actually did you know the the high school late 1950s equivalent of this where he went into a recording studio and pressed a vinyl album of his small high school band the 50s equivalent of making an album in your house with your pro tools or whatever you have that's awesome though I think it's a great idea. Was your dad involved in recording business? Uh, no, he well, he was a voiceover guy. Uh, he's still alive, so I'm not referring to him in past tense <laughs> no, only sure. for the sake but of... he doesn't uh, still do it. He was a great father. <laughs> <laughs> um, he played drums and uh, in high school, and his parents disapproved of him being a musician, so he did not continue the drums... This is like, you know, that scene in the, the movies where your parents are like, you're not going to become a no-good musician. Yeah. I'm not going to let you. The rock and roll music. Fuck you, Dad. <laughs> um, it's ruining our society. Remember in the good old days exactly. when we played the big bands? Elvis and the Beatles, they're tearing us apart. Your father uh, played drums, and that was frowned upon because rock music was generally frowned upon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but he was a professional voiceover guy for quite a while in the 80s. How did he get into that? My dad dad was a salesman a schmoozer a good i say schmoozer in the best possible way Salespeople uh, are schmoozers yeah they gotta be right and uh, he kind of looks like ted danson from cheers or if you're really old and you're listening to this john davidson please google john davidson <laughs> i will google john who davidson. was like a talk show host from the 80s that was like if ted danson looked a little more i don't know mainstream or something but, <laughs> so i have a, a relatively low voice Sometimes that's come in handy in whatever acting and voiceover work I've been able to get. But my father, who I pretty much inherited whatever voice I have from, everything my father says sounds like this. He is a James Earl Jones-level voice that naturally emanates from him. You know, if I'm just talking in everyday life, my voice tone might be up here a little bit. But everything he says is just kind of, you know. So uh, he, on the salesman trail, people would literally and metaphorically grab him by the shoulders and say, uh, Bob... You have got to do voiceovers. Like, chuck all this shit aside. If you don't go and do voiceovers right now, we're going to beat you up. And how- so he got into some voiceover classes back in the late 70s yeah. when not everyone was dying to be an actor in New York City. Sure. And it was a lot easier to get in. This would never happen now, but he literally went to casting director's offices door to door, schmoozed this receptionist and the secretaries, and like brought flowers to the receptionist and secretaries, and got uh, an agent Cunningham Escott Topini, which is now Cunningham Slevin. I don't know how much you follow. The, it's one of the biggest commercial agents in the city. I believe you. No, that that um, does work. That really does work. You no, but I mean, in back in sh- the late 70s, though, I no, think you it got a schmo- You got a schmooze, man. Like, the same way. Walking into places, showing up. 
Oh, giving sure. people food. But I just mean, you know? in the current professional acting world, they don't want actors. Cut. Like, you know what I mean? If you're trying to get a real big commercial yeah. agent, you are not even allowed you to. Can't, you can't just cold mail. You can't cold call unless you're the most charming motherfucker that ever existed. That's frowned upon, and they'll kind of pat you on the head and be like, okay, dude, there's 8,000 people waiting for FaceTime with us. Nice try. Back then, he literally just pounded the pavement, got an agent, did a bunch of TV and, and radio voiceovers. When was he involved in voiceover work? When you were, what, you were, how old when he got involved? I would have been between 7 and, like, 13. Picture the late 70s. If you picture the late 70s, what was really, really big was not only video games, but pinball machines. And my dad was auditioning to do a voiceover for a commercial selling, like, the little toy versions of pinball machines that, that were must very been, big in the late 70s. That must have been, like, a thrill for 13-year-old Tony Wolf. Well, yeah, like, oh my and God, I remember... I my dad does this! And, you know, the way kids, like, think selfishly, I was like, if my dad... He just... He was auditioning for it, right? He did, I don't think he got that particular job. But in the interim, when he was like, if I get this job... Maybe they'll give me a free pinball toy to give to my son to take home. And I was like, oh, please let him get this job. I want that plain electronic pinball machine so badly. And it was like the size of a TV dinner or something. I remember, I, I remember those things. Absolutely. I right, remember those right. things. His, his greatest success was he was paid a great deal of money at one point to do a perfume, a woman's perfume called Aramis, which may still exist. That sounds really familiar. Though. Yeah, yeah, it, it does might sound still familiar. exist. And he made truckloads of money for saying the following words. Aramis, the impact never fades. That's all it takes. That was it. No, and I mean, that was like, I mean, because it was, you're a, just it was paid, small cash cow for yeah. a voiceover person. He wasn't like making massive voiceover bank. You get paid every single time it is aired. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. just it. That's and it was, all a, big, it was it. a big product with like a big Estee Lauder probably budget or something behind if it. If you book a national, you're golden. Voiceover actors could be relatively anonymous and you didn't have to be a big True. name. Like yeah. now, whatever the case may be, it's the way the business rolls. But, you know, bigger names are... Uh, the way it goes now in the voiceover world. And you certainly have people who have been doing it for years who are established and continue doing sure, it. So it's a small sure. community. But therefore, uh, because of the small community that's already been pre-existing, anybody who's new who gets into it has to be like a name. Well, and, yeah. I mean, there's always, I believe there's always a way to hack your way into anything. But it's, oh, it's for such sure. a smaller niche now to try to break into. My dad left the voiceover business because he was the breadwinner of the family, right? And he just found the acting world. To this day, he's sort of like, uh, my parents are very supportive of me, but he was like, it's too fickle. It's just too fickle. And I have two mouths to feed and a family to support. And I can't live this like, maybe I'll get it, maybe I won't. Or, you know, the struggle all of us face as actors or creative people if you have a day job, right? Well, his day job was being a salesman. You would get an audition call, and all of us do, right? It's like, drop everything you're doing, be at this audition in two hours. And sometimes you are committed to a day job where, well, if you drop that in two hours, you might lose that day job, and then you lose your... That's anyway, the conundrum. Yeah, so he basically said, this is too uncertain for me, it's too wacky for me, and he kind of gracefully exited out of it. He's done some voiceover in the last 10 years, local things in Long Island, etc. Sure, doing the regionals. And then, of course, I continued the uh, be a creative dreamer type thing to the next degree sure. by becoming an actor, singer, performer, and making crazy tapes 
with my friends pretty much throughout yeah. elementary school, junior high school, and high school. So, you know, I know we had talked um, prior to recording that you actually had tapes that you had intended on sharing uh, on Lost in the yes. Wild, of which did not make it. And how old were you when you made those tapes? So, I think anyone who's a, a comedy person and probably influenced by things like Saturday Night Live... Or even when you were little, uh, if you want to go back to Nickelodeon, you can't do that on television. Totally. Right? In Living Color, too, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Super influential to so many comedians. Third or fourth grade, I think we all hit upon the idea, which no one else did in our circle of friends, that you could use a cassette tape recorder to make sketch comedy. And just to improv and make stuff up. Certainly, we didn't call it improv back then. We just called it having fun. Exactly. Uh, And I had a friend that was about two years older than me who was a huge Woody Allen fan and was very, like, his parents were New York Times reading intellectuals. Because <laughs> I was going to say, like, wait, you, how old you were when you were making yeah. these he was And he was a Woody Allen fan? I, I was precocious. He was the kid in the, in the corner who was reading the newspaper? Yeah. I was precocious, <laughs> but he was more precocious. I think these people had a the book Goal Escher Bach, which is like this weird art book about, I'm familiar. A, about MCO, Goal Escher Bach. Yep. It was very, like, intellectual art stuff. And... This this kid, whose his name was John Kleiman, shout out to John Kleiman if you eventually listen to this, he was writing and drawing his own anti-Ronald Reagan political cartoons <laughs> when he was in sixth grade. I'll give him that because Mad, <laughs> Mad and Kratt. Yes, oh, he was massively influenced by Mad were, and things were, like that. You know, they were influential to young kids who otherwise would not really have the access to political humor. Yes, you hit the nail on the head. And this was a guy who was into SNL. SNL, when I'm like nine years old, is Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy. You know, Golden it, gods. It's, it's late 70s, early 80s. We were very influenced by that. The, the dumbest uh, parody joke imaginable, Saturday Night Live for us became Sunday Morning Dead. <laughs> And SND was like the cool abbreviation we would refer to it by. But Sunday morning dead, yeah. Um, So what what happened to the tapes? They just incinerated or something? So I, as many of us do when you, I didn't move apartments. I've been in the same apartment in Greenpoint for 20 years and counting. We all go through purges, right, occasionally. And I had all these cassette tapes, uh, most of which were music, but many of which were the audio tape recordings of my friends and I growing up in elementary school. And doing these comedy sketches, we had a Lego thing where we had a, we created a demolition derby where you would make your Lego vehicle, right? Make your little Lego car. And then we created this story where it was a demolition derby and there'd be certain characters. You know, certain characters were slick and cool and would win a lot, like Reggie and the Archie, you know, comics. And then there was an old uh, little orange stuffed animal we called Farmer Orange, who was always like the... The old guy who, whose car always broke first, and he was just the hapless old loser, and, you know. Like Wacky Races, right? Like Wacky, oh, I'm sure it was very Wacky Races influenced, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, there was a vivid thing I was, I was telling you about where we saw Superman 2, right? The Christopher Reeve, Superman 2. We had just come home from seeing it when it was freshly out in the theater, which replaced this around 1982, I guess. We came home, and with the movie still so fresh in our heads, literally like 20 minutes after we'd come home from seeing this terrific movie, we proceeded to record our parody of it, scene by scene, because it was so fresh in our heads. Once again, very influenced by what we'd read in Mad Magazine, when they were parody films and things like that. And you tossed all the tapes in the trash, is what you're saying? Yes, about five years ago, I tossed all these tapes in the trash because I thought, no one has cassettes players anymore it's very hard to find them in society i didn't really anticipate that there'd be a movement 
you guys, your show, or yeah, many other shows around tr- the world. Trust, it is not just us. Like, no, I, I know there's a, a massive of a cassette tape yeah. revival, but I just thought vinyl, I figured vinyl would always come back eventually. It's as many people as there are doing things like your show where there's a cassette tape revival mentality. We're, we're looked at like as misfits. That's True, fine. but take, take the cassette tape revival retro mentality, right, or that movement, and take 10% of the cassette tape movement and that 10% of the cassette tape retro fans gives you the 8-track tape retro fans, right? So in my mind back then when I threw them all out, I thought, you know how hard it is to find an 8-track tape player in this day and age? That's how hard it is. And that's how hard it's going to continue to be to find a cassette player. So I threw them out, and I'm so pissed because if I had projected forward psychically into time, into the future, I would know that I could have brought these and you could have heard... A parody of Superman 2 that's probably only mildly amusing. <laughs> but luckily enough for us, but you do cute. have a tape, yeah. though, at any rate, you yes. brought with you. I did want to backtrack one quick second because you mentioned that your dad played drums. Right. And he played a little piano, too, actually. So your father was not just a voiceover guy, but he was a musician. In regards to the tape you brought, which is a music tape, and we'll get to that shortly, Sure. you were influenced more than likely by your father in terms of playing uh, an instrument. Did you play any instruments when you were younger? A little bit. I took piano for quite a number of years as a kid. I played by ear decently, meaning like you plunk out single notes of a song you heard on the radio or something. So, I mean, I took lessons. I was okay. I took lessons for about three or four years from fourth grade to sixth grade. When I was in seventh grade, I made a bunch of friends who were one year younger than me, uh, a guy named Jason and a guy named Andy, that were like similarly actor, dorky, geeky, musical theater people who were just super, I don't know, into comedy and into old style stuff, the Honeymooners, MASH, Happy Days, like Welcome Back, Cotter, like all that vintage late Nick 70s. Nick at Night. Yeah, yeah, which which for me was real TV, but eventually morphed into for the younger people. Hey, no, Nick it's, at night. It's it's certainly I feel very old, gentlemen, very old. Yeah, I like that. Our, like our that. audience appreciates you already. Well, wait then. So so anyway, they, so I met these guys, and they played instruments too. Yes, and they were far better instrumentalists than me, and yet a year younger than you too, and were yeah. already proficient more so than you in your a, piano playing. A, a smidgen, a smidgen. I just within two years they they surpassed me very quickly there are there are five-year-olds in the subway station that put me to shame dude. <laughs> what, 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 shame <laughs> I, I i need only say whatever the name of that band is of the kids who play metal that's all i'm gonna say you know that that trio of kids that one hansen <laughs> i no, think this was vaguely like, heard this was of like an african-american hansen that plays like punk and metal and oh. they're amazing yeah, I, I wish i remember their name of them they're once. very young they're Quite super young. young. Yeah. yeah. They're they're like And they like tour. They go around. They're tots, dude. <laughs> you know what's the weirdest thing I saw recently that was just and this is a little off topic, but it's just go for it. I, I had to I have to just talk about this because it's been on my mind. Rage on. Videos of little kids on YouTube uh, that now know MMA because MMA is like a sport now. <laughs> and like them fighting kids that definitely don't know MMA. That's that's <laughs> they're trying to do moves. So like, like, the, like moves. A, a bully will come over. And like bother them, and then they will like tear the bully to shreds. And oh, like, so wait, but this is not like a staged. No, video? these are like videos because every kid has a cell phone now, so they're just taping each so other. So they want to film little Jimmy uh, beating the shit out of some well, bully. I don't know. I'm a, I don't know MMA. I personally <laughs> yeah. don't. But I just I mean Jimmy as a as a potential. But if I have a kid yeah. and his name is Jimmy, 
I'm definitely going to get him to learn All right. nice. so he can put kids in you know, arm bars and stuff. Well, Cowboy Alon's going <laughs> to reel the whole uh, cattle back in because I, I find it really amazing that we live in this world where you could have these little kids playing this music and everybody sees it and immediately they're stars. Yes. It's like yes. if little Tony and his group of... Right. Uh, when we did this in 1984... This was just for us. I exactly. Mean, literally only our close friends and maybe a few acquaintance friends would have ever heard this. Um, right. And you guys, I'm sure, as, as comedy people and singers yourselves, you know, you meet, you meet friends, especially when you're young, friends of a like mind. You get along, you click as friends, and you immediately start creating stuff together. My friend Jason had, a, in his basement, he had a whole drum set. His father was like a Paul McCartney, like, multi-talented crazy, you know, kind of very skilled musician who had a band in World War II charted in London, like on the London hit parade. Uh, anyway, so Jason was uh, very into music, very into the Beatles, and we began making music in this guy's basement. So it was literally a true basement band. The best stuff starts when you're just joking around and what makes you laugh, right? If something makes you and your friends laugh and you feel you're a relatively tough audience, at whatever age you're at, they always say, write the song you'd want to hear, write the book you'd want to read as a, as a paying audience member, write the movie you'd be excited about as an audience member. Anyway, we were laughing about heavy metal, you know, crazy death metal stuff. And we were definitely huge fans of things like Spinal Tap and of things like uh, They Might Be Giants. So one day we made up 15 song titles of like a fictional parody heavy metal punk band they were just outrageous, gross-out song titles, uh, much like Tenacious D would have done 15 years later. Sure. And I was like, guys, the name of the band is Inclement Weather. And uh, they were like, yeah, sure, that's the name of the band, let's go. And I was like, I was like, this is the best name for a parody punk band ever. And uh, Inclement Weather. Inclement Weather, man. Still, to this day, when we hear that phrase in the meteorological reports, we... Uh, we sigh with, <laughs> with nostalgia. So then we had these 15 song titles of like ridiculous, you know, kill your family, kill your, you know, just ridiculous. You like, created the songs first and then you made the titles. We so. know. We made up ridiculous titles first. And then you made not, the songs? We made up ridiculous titles. Not, oh, that's rich. We made up ridiculous titles not even thinking we were going to record them. It was just a, a brainstorming comedy exercise. Uh, once again, improv when you're 11 and you don't know what improv is, you're just making shit up that makes you laugh. But but on that note, though, it's like you have a suggestion, and then in, yeah. off of that suggestion, you have to create something. Right. And all three of us came up with all these song titles, and we still have the piece of paper with the song titles. <laughs> so then we go home. You know, we're, we're dorks. We don't have girlfriends. We're in seventh grade. We're, we kind of have no lives. Say no more. We're watching VCR movies and like going to the 7-Eleven and getting Slurpees, and that's our lives, right? You grew up on Long Island? Yeah, Rockville Center, Long Island. Ah, which, I got family uh, there. Amy Schumer uh, went to my high school. I actually taught her when I was a substitute teacher. On one afternoon, a weekend afternoon, we make these song titles, not intending to record them. And then we get home, we're like, what are we going to do with the rest of our afternoon, right? And someone came up with the idea of, let's just go with our Casio keyboard. And I got some bongos here. Nice. There's a primitive drum set, and I have a harmonica, and here's a wood block. <laughs> That his parents had in the basement, like the drummer hits the woodblock. Let's do these songs that we've titled. All right. So the titles were like, Large Bloody Chainsaw, Kill, Maim, Smash, Die, Mutilate, Etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Did You Trash Your Brother's Car Yet? Mama's Got a Mohawk. And I Saw Mommy Decapitating Santa Claus. 
So, you know, things like that. So was the mommy with the mohawk decapitating Santa Claus? No, those are two separate songs. But uh, that's, each the, song... that's the sequel, though. Yeah. To both. Yeah. See, that's what's great about it is that's, the mashup. that's relatively representative of, of regular metal. <laughs> it's well, like not far off. I'm like, ah, that sounds like some good song titles right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, and the, by the way, this is the early 80s, right? right? So this is emerging metal. And we're still coming off punk. So to a 12-year-old, punk was definitely something that just seemed funny and that it was very easy to make fun of. It was of. fresh and, and it wasn't yeah. like ingrained yet where people said, no, 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 you got to be more serious about that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I vividly remember as a quick but related sidebar, when Joey Ramone passed away, one of the guys from They Might Be Giants, a band I, I worship and I think are fantastic, he wrote a long essay that was in Rolling Stone about when the They Might Be Giants guys first heard the Ramones when they were, you know, nine or something, they thought it was hilarious. I mean, they liked the music, but they saw that the music was funny and was kind of making fun of a lot of things and was, like, purposely outrageous and... Uh... Rock and roll high school. Oh, yeah, yeah Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Think about it, you know. Yeah, rock, rock. It's just like, you know... Or, like, you know, the song about going to psychotherapy and, you know. Uh, in any case, we did this album. We recorded it. Now, by the way, another show, what we did was, even though all those cassette tapes were thrown away... We have all this music because Jason is like the archivist. 10, 12 years ago, he transferred all of it to CDs. Sting from the police did like, Don't Stand So Close to Me. And then did Don't Stand So Close to Me 2002, like a redone version. (laughs) We did redone modern versions of Mama's Got a Mohawk. And now that we actually knew how to play instruments somewhat relatively well. Well, you uh, did. did, uh, No wood block this time. Uh, the woodblock might have gotten left in the basement. <laughs> you did. You did. We, something... we moved beyond the woodblock. <laughs> you, you shared something online on YouTube. You can. You, yes. Anybody who can go on and search for Fohawk on YouTube, and you will find the inclement weather. This is from. Let's say it's from 1983 to 2007. We were with this band making music whenever we could get together. High school, college, and then intermittently after college. Right. Uh, and, and this was an all improv it, song. Or were you I sang the Fohawk song okay. and improv the whole song. That's awesome. It became a game. Before we knew what improv game was, we made up our own game, which is, okay, the three of us as friends, we make up 12 to 15 insanely ridiculous titles. And then we go into the basement, and we had a rule that you couldn't think about your song beforehand. Like, you couldn't come up with clever rhymes. And we would, we all could play instruments just barely enough to rotate. There was no real leader. So it would just be like, okay, okay, I'm going to go through the list. Okay, I'm deciding that Jimmy is going to sing, you know, this song. And, and, and I'm going to play drums and you're going to play this. And it would constantly rotate. And whoever would call out the songs would also rotate. So you'd never know what song you were really going to end up getting. We would press record go and we would go for 40 minutes straight and not stop and even if a song was really bad or if something was really horrible we never pressed stop we just kept going so we did two albums which are probably what 30 or 40 minutes per side of a cassette tape right we did two improv albums each album had a title just like a real album would right so there's the song titles but then each album had a separate title and we all came up with them together so after two albums of all improv comedy Jason and Andy were getting better at the instruments. I could play chords on keyboard and hit the woodblock, I guess. And I was I was a decent singer, right? Then they started to want to write their own songs. Now, because most of Inclement Weather was was improv, we started to call the real songs our premeditated songs. So there was improv albums and there were premeditated albums. So uh, Jason and Andy were songwriters, budding young songwriters. I tried to write songs. 
I was decent at writing in the improv moment, but I I never actually like wrote a song and came in like you know famous bands like I came in guys I wrote this song we're gonna do the song and then we learn the arrangement of it. Jason and Andy would come in with songs they'd written on their own. They did all the chords, they did all the lyrics. They would teach us the parts. We would build the arrangement together, and we would record it. Poker in Your Eye was the first inclement weather premeditated song. And we ended up doing about eight premeditated songs. And then we were like, you know what? In our little mythology that no one cared about but us, that's enough to call it an album. So Poker in Your Eye was something that Andy wrote he goes by the name Andy Bandit. He writes Poker in Your Eye, still in that, you know, parody, you know, faux, faux punk rock thing. And uh, Jason played basic drums. I played keyboards. Poker in Your Eye is about what it sounds like. It's about sticking a poker in someone's eye. Well, let's take a <laughs> listen. This is uh, this is going to be really exciting. This No one's ever heard this before. I mean... There is one friend of ours named Russ Lichter who's now... He doesn't count. No, okay. I'm saying, yeah, he's a film editor in L.A., but he used to play some Inclement Weather songs on his college radio station in the 90s. Other than that... Other than that... No one has ever heard let's take this a listen. on the airway. This is an exclusive, another exclusive, Lost and Rewound. Hello. Hello. This is uh, Inclement Weather. Weather's third album called Eye, Eye of the Storm. Storm. We just went to the mental hospital and, uh, and got completely become, rejuvenated. Yeah. Yeah. We've become fine, upstanding citizens of society now. Yes, but we still we still have some qualities of our old of our old stuff, <laughs> and it comes huh? out in some of our songs. So uh, yeah. we're gonna start with our first song, which is called uh, Poker in Your Eye. This yeah. goes back to our older method of thinking. All right, okay, see you here later. we go. Yeah. Poker in your eye, it makes you wanna cry, and now you wanna die! 
Uh, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I like. Am I, the, am I supposed to be the voice of reason? Is this is why you call him. You might be. It's unfair because uh, Tony gave me the tape, so I had to get it ready. So I got a chance to hear it, and I <laughs> have the, my the version so here. This is the freshest of ears. <laughs> yeah, I, it's hard to to know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hold back. <laughs> when you when you're in when you're a kid, like how much you'll commit, like the fact that yes! you guys were like. <laughs> So we gotta, serious. we gotta get serious about this. Like, this is our first serious album. <laughs> <laughs> now we're finally gonna write the songs. <laughs> it's still like, it just, it really reminds me of all the same stuff in childhood. The same way when you, you know, how you'll get so serious about something. Even if you look at like an essay you wrote, or totally, totally, just anything like that. And when you look back and you go. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah. And by the way, this one I think was I think Jason had a four track recorder, oh, and of then course. he upgraded to an eight track recorder eventually in short order. But we talking about commitment. We sat there like it was a real recording studio, and we did so many takes that led to what you just heard. You know, there were takes, and eventually within two albums, there were like layered tracks, and you would have to hear the playback, and you know. So we were very intense. The other thing that I'll mention is that very influenced by Spinal Tap, I'm sure, we had characters. So within Inclement Weather, we had like joke character names and we would play the characters throughout the recording of the improv albums. I was a character named Joe Vomithead. Uh, Andy was Mickey Spillguts. So good. And Jason was uh, Johnny Intestines. This is just garbage pail kids, right? Uh, in some ways, in some ways. But it Johnny Intestines, I'm sure, was a Johnny Rotten, you yeah. know, uh, illusion so, somehow. It's a if it's spitting image of it. There you go. And Johnny Intestines was like the really the good looking but dumb drummer, you know, who just who just never got it. So if you guys ever were to go on stage, say we actually did perform in public as Inclement Weather twice. Okay. Did, for, so did you wear costumes or anything like that? No, no. Just, we just went up into the song. What was yeah. the first time like, and where, and when, where? We did when, it actually. Like, the first one I think was at Southside High School at our old high school, like because, a talent, like a talent show or something like that. No, I was. It was a weird situation. So after college, I did some social work in the Midwest. I came back. I was a substitute teacher at my old high school when I was twenty-five. I tried to be like the cool sub that the kids liked, and I think I mostly achieved it. We performed inclement weather at that school when while you were I was in a college. sub, or no, after after college, after right? college. Wow, substitute teachers are always trying to pull some crazy and shit. I seriously, <laughs> our our music teacher went to Juilliard with Christopher Reeve and oh. Robin Williams. She went to uh, college with them, and she was like a big mentor for us, very influential. Her name is Karen Bear. I don't know if you're listening to this, Karen Bear, but you're awesome, Mrs. Bear. She is, and, don't worry. Uh, she actually was the mentor of a guy who just got nominated for a Tony Award. You know, He's in, in the musical An American in Paris. His name is Max von Essen. He's now like a Broadway star. And we sang with him in high school. And this same mentor mentored us that mentored him. Anyway, she was like... You guys want to play your crazy and color weather music while Tony's a sub? Here, we'll give you a free period, and the kids can all come and hear the crazy sounds of Inclement Weather. So awesome. But by that time, we actually were, I don't want to say good musicians, but competent musicians. It wasn't, it wasn't poker in your eye. We did not play poker in your eye to children. We were also very into acapella and barbershop, and that began like a lifelong obsession for me with singing acapella. Ooh. We got to get to that in a little bit. Dude. <laughs> Yo, let's let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's listen to some of that barbershop. It's lost and rewound. We're your friends. 
We're your friends, we're your friends to the bitter end. The bitter end. When you're alone, when you're alone, who comes around? Who comes around to pluck you up? To pluck you up when you are down. When you are down. And when you're outside looking in, who's there to open the door? That's what friends are for. Who hovers near? Who are your chums? Prepare to pounce when danger comes. Who's always eager to extend a friendly claw? That's what friends are for, and when you're lost in dire need, who's at your side at lightning speed? We're friends with every creature coming down the pike. In fact, we never met an animal we didn't like, didn't like, didn't like. So you can see, so you can see, we're friends in need, we're friends in need, and friends in need, and friends in need, our friends indeed, our friends indeed. We'll keep you safe in the jungle forevermore. Ah, that's what our friends are for. What friends are So, you know, with what we just heard, the doo-wop was strong with Tony Wolf, clearly. If you're just checking us out here, we are the in... The was strong with this one. <laughs> we, we, we are in the studio with Tony Wolf talking about his tape from his younger years. We were just listening a little bit ago to Inclement Weather, his first band, his uh, middle school slash high school slash college slash after college <laughs> band. And then uh, evidently from the tape that I uh, was provided, there... Also exists a number of Barbershop Quartet-inspired songs, including that cover of a Jungle Book song. The interest in Barbershop slash doo-wop slash... Never stopped. Never stopped. (laughs) Uh, Into your adult life, you kept it going. The recordings that we have here in front of us, though, when did you record them? Everything on that tape is from junior high school. So, so me, that was junior high, what we just heard yeah, before with the Jungle just, Book. That was the three of us. Jason was the best arranger and musician. Uh, he had a vinyl album of the Jungle Book soundtrack. By that point, I'm probably in eighth grade, so I'm 14, I guess, right? And yeah. Jason and Andy are in seventh grade. You know, we just we had good ears in terms of picking out the harmonies, and, and we loved to sing and harmonize with each other, and we just really got off on singing harmony. So we learned that ourselves. And then the Juilliard high school music teacher, she was like, oh, I have guys here who can sing, and they're so geeky. They love to sing harmony. They love to sing barbershop. So she kind of stoked that fire in us. Just like the acting teachers were like, these guys are really into acting. You know, they'll do it on their own time because they have no girlfriends or they have no lives or whatever. So, you know, this is how actors are made, people. It's true. Um, They have very modest beginnings. I will never forget. I was at an event that Edward Norton spoke at. It was a Martin Scorsese event that I did, like, offstage voiceovers for. You know, when they were like, ladies and gentlemen, Edward Norton. And he walks up. He said when he first moved to the city, he had no money and no job. And he and his roommates would sit in their apartment, their little crappy, wherever they lived in New York, and they had like four VCR tapes of De Niro movies, and they just watched them over and over 
and over again to the point where they had every second of those movies memorized. That intensity is how we approached <laughs> the music we made in Jason's Basement or Barbershop or uh, acapella harmony stuff that we sang as, as kids in junior high school. We were just so obsessed with it. I want to uh, read off a few of these song titles because I, you know, they're obviously well-known standards. And A couple I want... of them. A couple of them. Uh, Jason wrote some of them as well. We'll go, we can go through them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, We Have No Bananas. That's a Spike Jones song. I give you dap for that. No, that's a uh, that is also an old old 1920s barbershop song. That Spike Jones did do a cover of. You're right. Sorry. I was going to say yeah. My, my, but, my infami- but my familiarity is with that cover because uh, they did a lot of humorous renditions of awesome. standards. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, like you always hurt the one you love. Um, right. And whatnot. Cocktails for two. Right. And, and I think the high school music teacher that we I'm speaking I'm speaking so highly of. She was like, you guys love barbershop? Here's sheet music to a bunch of obscure barbershop songs that you could just learn in your free time because I know you're going to do it anyway because you're all dorks. She said that affectionately, of course. I love this song. It's been done by everybody. It's right. called Tonight You Belong to Me. Oh, the, and this was, I'll, before you play it, I'll specifically say it's because Jason was a huge, as we were all, but he was, hey, Jason and I were huge Steve Martin fans. And this, of course, is taken from the scene with Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters in the movie The Jerk. I know you belong to somebody new, but tonight you belong to me. Although we're apart, your part of my heart, and tonight. just still blown away that that was done by eighth and ninth graders i swear it sounds like you are in college it sounds like you're going to those groups that they have in college those uh, you know and in, in the different um what what's the name for the fancy schools just thinking of um <laughs> institutions you know. Like the, I, the Ivy's. Highly, yes, Ivy like, They always have like, you know, you, I, again, like I didn't go to an Ivy, but I watched The Fresh Prince. and <laughs> So I know everything. So I have a reference. So, you know, Carlton, yeah. Carlton is in the Ivy League, like singing troupe. And, of and course. He's right. like me and the, um, me and the boys. Know, no. Yeah, like the Crispy Doodles or whatever. Gonna, <laughs> I forgot uh, what they were named. Yeah, That's the, so funny. There was like some goofy name that was a pun, you know, and then they they would sing barbershop type right. songs in that way. Cool. And they'd all wear blazers that matched, you know, sort of thing. Well, Jason Jason uh, is a very close friend. He moved out to L.A. about a year ago. An amazing musician who's just gotten better and better and better. One of his idols is Paul McCartney. 
I think in his life, musically, he just wants to be Paul McCartney, and he's proficient at all these different instruments. So he had that hunger and that thirst starting in early teenage years to just learn and make as much music as he could. We love that. He he was like, hey, <clears throat> once again, in this, he was the ringleader. He was like, you know what? We're going to sing this song. You're going to sing the harmony from the Steve Martin movie, The Jerk, with a scene with Bernadette Peters. He learned the chords on the Casio keyboard. I didn't play keyboard on that. And uh, what did you So you just were singing I, along. I sang the harmony with him. Yeah, yeah. And then he played the trumpet solo. And, you know, pretty good trumpet solo for a 14-year-old. I, I'd say so, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it's, it, you know, honestly, yes, the quality is distinctly that of uh, DIY of in the basement. Right, right. But the presentation is so spot on and, and polished. Well, thanks. Yeah. You know how it is. When you're ma- at any age, when you're making stuff and you want to be a professional actor, singer, comic book person, whatever it is, like the more obsessed you are, the more you want your shit to be professional grade. You want to get a professional right. presentation. Yeah. And when I made uh, comic books that I drew and wrote as a kid, I was again so obsessed in this that I would make sure that I reproduced the section of the cover where it said how many cents the comic book cost and like the UPC code and what was the price in Canada. You know, it would be like ninety nine cents in the U S. but one fifty in Canada because of like old comic books would have that distinction like I don't know we were all very obsessed so you're so ta- that was a lot yeah. of fun to do and Jason there was another song on the tape that was a Beatles song he was he was like enough of a music lover at age fourteen to be like this is not an overplayed song this is like a more obscure cool Beatles song I would agree <laughs> my wife the Beatles fan will probably appreciate this let's take a listen oh, okay. uh, to uh, I'll be on my way the sun is fading away. That's the end of the day As the true light turns to moonlight I'll be on my way Just one kiss then I'll go Don't hide the tears that don't show As the true light turns to moonlight I'll be on my way To where the winds don't blow And golden rivers flow Those hand claps in the background, they don't even sound like hand claps. They just sound like a like an actual drum track. It's a, it's I'll, that's marvelous. I'll have you know those hand hand claps were on a separate track. By this point we've moved into the maybe an A track. Look recorder. at you, man. Graduating to the big times. I would like to say we were flat. It almost sounded like a weird key change like in warped, the middle of a line. Yeah. It sounded like a war. Believe me, if we were flat, I would be the first to be like, We're flat because we were flat in some of the other barbershop songs we heard earlier. I think that was a warped uh, old cassette tape thing. Jason did the chords for that. Um I think he used the Casio keyboard drum beat. 
And I think what he did was, I think he wanted to include me so he wasn't always playing the piano like a good friend. So he taught, I believe he taught me the bass line. So I played like the single note bass line on the keyboard. So I would sort of have something to do, I think. Uh, Jason, you can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. If you knew this. I've been there. Someone comes and leads you by the hand and goes, look, look. Yeah. You get involved. Well, he, I, I had a decent piano playing ability. But at that, even at like age 14 or 15, he was starting to surpass me. You know? And he also just stayed at home practicing keyboards a lot. Like, like someone who wants to be a professional musician would do. I got to say, you know, just like being that age and being proficient in an instrument is something that I still to this day, I don't envy, but I just, I scratch my head because I tried learning how to play guitar when I was 14. Guitar's hard, man. Gosh, you know, I never followed through with learning how to play guitar. Acting was the only thing of all the activities when I was a kid that I figured, nah, I'm just going to stick with this because I, you know, it's the one thing that just goes kind of constantly work for me and I'll never be a musician. But at the same time, you, Tony, had total, complete control of your talents because of the people that you were surrounded by. Well, I have So to you say, had people yeah, to I mean, facilitate and fuel you to keep going with what you were doing. Jason was definitely more the leader in this dynamic. He saw that I love music and that I love singing. But yeah, if not for his influence, I think a lot of things would not have happened for me. Just in terms of the friends you, like you said, the friends you surround yourself with, the friends you naturally make. But yeah, it was funny. And we were... Two heterosexual guys uh, who are very happy to uh, sing love songs in the room and uh, practice them to our heart's content and, and get the best recording we could on, on tape. And in the nude. Yeah. Well, you know, as I will say this, as the... Incl- what do you think about that? Well, as the Inclement Weather improv albums got crazier and crazier, we did one song all in the nude. Because by that point, we've been best friends for eight years, and we were like, fuck it. How did I call that? (laughs) You totally did. And the song was called The Nakedness of Man. The lyrics were not particularly funny nor inspired, but we did it. We took the clothes off. But the joke is that it's an audio tape, so no one can see. It's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We could have lied, but no, we were that committed to the joke. Radio magic. Radio magic, uh, if only. You have here uh, some songs that we don't have time to get to, but I have to read them off, especially for Jimmy's own laughter. No, um, so we heard the first (laughs) track, and then Total Annihilation is like a four- to five-minute track that you recorded. That was our attempt at a dark, somber rock epic, or metal epic. Uh Uh-huh. Attempt is the key word there. And then... um, I was hoping to play every day to, to take us out because I really like that song a lot. You could do that's our that's our attempt at a lighthearted song for a a, a parody punk metal band. Uh, we heard we're your friends. The still of the night is a classic. I love that song. Classic so, doo wop song, indeed. We mentioned the yes, we have no bananas. There's uh one and two parts to a song called Anteater Song. Oh, that was a comedy improv song. I see. That was a long form comedy improv song, kind of influenced by Alice's Restaurant by Woody Guthrie. Mm, I, I'd say I, I listened to it and I will uh, attest that. Okay, that, yeah. that's a good inspiration. That was a primitive thirteen-year-old comedy improv. For, the, for those song. who are curious, it's basically just um, completely off the cuff, made up as he, they go along. A song about an anteater and his adventures. And the anteater does not like veal parmesan was a major uh, yeah. running gag, if gag can be used, well, look, in the song. I totally relate with the anteater because I never really was a fan of veal 
still to this day. Wow. Really. You heard it here, listeners of Lost and Rewound. Not a fan of yeah, veal. The lawn is not a fan of veal. I'm a fan of any <laughs> young animal that I can eat. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Woo. Doot, doot, doot. Is uh, that a, an original? Doot, doot, doot is an instrumental that Jason wrote uh. on, on his, you know, 1983 Casio keyboard. Yeah. And then said... Since we harmonize well together, because he was kind of an arranger, like I said, he was kind of an arranger, maestro kind of guy. So it quickly evolved that if there was a leader, it was him, I think. But he was like, Andy's not able to come over on this given day, but why don't you and I take this four-track recorder that I have and do a singing vocal version of this instrumental he'd written on his wonderfully crappy Casio keyboard. And since it was like... You know, doot, 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 doot. He was like, let's just call the song Doot, Doot, Doot. <laughs> Perfect. So therefore, Doot, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Hot as Sun. That was an instrumental. I believe that's a Paul McCartney instrumental. That Once it? again, Jason was so into Paul McCartney, he would teach himself Paul McCartney instrumentals from his uh, post-Beatles albums. Zoom? Zoom is an instrumental that Jason and I wrote together. Which ends in the word Zoom being spoken out loud, sure. crypt- cryptically, of course. And then uh, Roundabout? <laughs> was an instrumental that Jason wrote that I played keyboards on. And then finally, Cacophony. Cacophony was an experiment from these young 15-year-old idiots uh-huh. where it was, I'm sure, influenced by the end of Sgt. Pepper's when the whole orchestra just plays random notes that all come to a crescendo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a cacophony. It was a bunch of random notes, sounds, instruments, all blaring. Field and... recordings. <laughs> uh, I suppose, yeah. But this was an intentional, you know, intentional experimental uh, track. The, the last sound what, that wait, you, the listener, we... hears is the sound of the toilet flushing. Oh, that's right. And it ends with an actual toilet flushing. That's the one good gag in the song, I think. Playing all of these songs, clearly it stands to reason that singing uh, is still something you do. Can folks see you singing anywhere else but karaoke? or is like... uh, Not currently. I did a musical in the fall, uh, an an off-Broadway show, and I did end up singing uh, in an a cappella musical called Forever Plaid, which you may or may not know. Uh, Now I'm envious of that. Do you know the show? No. Forever Plaid sounds familiar, but I'm not familiar completely. It gets done a lot, like regional theater and stuff, and uh, Jason was in that show as well. It's a four-part harmony, you know, dorky a cappella show. yeah, I mean, I, I sing as much as I can. I did a lot of musicals. I toured around the country with national tours and regional theater, doing musicals from, like, 1996, yeah, 1996 to about 2006. Mm. I did a lot of musical theater around the country. Nothing huge. And then I just eventually got tired of doing musicals, and I wanted to stay in New York. Yep. So if you want to stay in New York and you're not, like, a Broadway chorus guy... You do karaoke or you do small workshops and shows. I did a couple workshops of new rock musicals that yeah. you, I hoped would move beyond like Playwrights Horizons or New Dramatists. And, and, oh, yeah, for sure. And they didn't move beyond those venues. So, you know, you never know where projects are It's good go. that you're uh, at least following your father's footsteps by involving yourself in voiceover work and you continue to do so. Thanks. I mean, just trying to do as much, like all of us, try to do as much comedy, acting, voiceover stuff. Apply any of the talents we have as much as possible, I think, is our goal as creators. We're in, we're in a room where uh, we are totally with you on that. Um, Thank you guys. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Real, real quick, yeah, though. Thanks for coming. Of course. No, Tony Wolf, everybody. One last uh, quick question about your Greenpoint of View comic. Uh, 
uh, again, that you can find that at the Midtown Comics in Grand Central. Correct. And that's about your 20 years of living in Greenpoint as a, a Greenpoint resident for that long. I'm sure your story is something that people would be interested in reading. Do you have anything just to quickly to mention about that? Massive comic book fan of all genres and varieties. And I was very into Harvey Picar. And for your listeners who don't know who Harvey Picar is upon hearing the word... The movie American Splendor was all such about a Harvey good movie. Picar. So I basically wrote and drew Harvey Picar esque stories, reflections on uh, anecdotes and reflections on the neighborhood. You can also, by the way, read some of those stories for free to get a taste at a website called GriffinKnights.com. It's www.gryphonkniggts. Griffin, like the mythological Griffin. Knights, like a knight in shining armor. GriffinKnights.com, and look for the Green Point of View pictures and click on them and you can read some stuff your twitter is tony wolfness tony wolfness uh like the essence of me is my tony wolfness <laughs> so that's how i came up with that because uh, you know when you're joining these things years ago all the names are taken your name is taken so then yeah. you have to make up like a cutesy name no I, I i i do feel sort of embarrassed when i tell people the name of my instagram or my twitter the and same way well, mine is a uh, slim jim jammer but nice. even saying it you know i, I think it's fine I'm Slim, and that's the old hip-hop name I used to use. Nice. <laughs> Jim Jammer. Uh, but even saying it, I'll see people go, like, snicker, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. My name is E-L-A-N-N, and that's exactly how my Twitter right. is. Well, your name is a little more unique, so it helps to spell it out for people, I would think. We're all unique and special snowflakes, and you've been listening to Tony Wolf uh, joining Jimmy Hoffman and myself, Alon Danziger, here on Lost and Rewound. We are here every Thursday at 3 p.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Thanks so much again for listening. Jimmy, any last thoughts? No. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you guys again for, for having me and allowing me to uh, go on this walk through memory lane. Yeah, again, thank you so much for coming, Tony. Again, guys, if you have any submissions, you can send them to lostandrewound at gmail.com. You can listen to any of our archive programs as well at lostandrewound.com. Or on audioboom.com. Audioboom! Slash Lost and Rewound. Hope you guys have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening. Cheers. One, two, three, four. It happens day to night and then it's night to day It happens all the time and in every place It's something that you see, it's something that you feel It could be far away, it could be really near It's in the night, although when you're finding out that it's you the girls are talking all about And you're walking down the street and there you are Just wishing you were old enough to drive a car Every day, every day It happens day to night and then it's night to day It happens all the time and in every place It's something that you see, it's something that you hear It could be far away or it could be really near Every day, every day